Welcome to the 1515, a 15-minute podcast brought to you by the regulatory legal experts at the Maples Group. Here, you will learn more about the latest developments in the regulatory laws of the Cayman Islands on the 15th day of every month. Hello everyone and welcome to the June episode of our 1515 podcast. My name is Tim Dawson and I'm a partner in the regulatory and financial services team here at Maples and Calder. Joining me today is regulatory associate Nikki Wood and senior vice president at Maples FS, Michelle Bailey. In this June edition, we're going to cover all the latest developments and regulatory laws that have taken place in the Cayman Islands since the May episode. Please note that the contents of this podcast do not constitute legal advice and should be taken as a general update only. And before we get going, just some light housekeeping to cover. If you're listening from your usual podcast app, you'll find any resource, documents, and speaker information in the description. And if you've clicked on the media player link sent via email, you can find this information in the notes section. Last but not least, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. So that's the housekeeping. Let's get started. So the first thing we're going to talk about today is the annual round of SEMA AML surveys, and I'd like to hand uh, you over to Nikki for that, if I may. Thanks, Tim. So yes, the Cayman Islands Monetary Authority has now issued the latest round of what is now its annual AML surveys. This is based on their updated reporting schedule and timetable for the surveys. If you have not received your survey yet, you should contact amlsurvey at SEMA.ky. The next deadline is for banks, so Class A, B, Building Societies, Credit Unions, um, Money Service Businesses and Development Banks, and that survey deadline is the 30th of June. The other deadlines for completion of the surveys, including for securities investment business, is the 31st of July, also for the trusts and investments such as mutual funds administrators. The funds have actually been excluded from having to complete a survey and then insurance survey is due by the 30th of September. The surveys have been designated to various people within those organisations that are on SEMA's records. Unfortunately, the, the survey doesn't take the same format as last year. There are some nuances in the numbering and the way that the questions have been asked. So you can't just use the same blanket response that was used last time. Most of the questions are business specific, so would be completed by the organisation itself with impact from the financial services providers, AMLCO where appropriate. And next we'll be talking about the DITC FI registration audit. So Tim, I'll hand back to you. Yeah, thanks for that, Nikki. So this year, the DITC has sent out its first audit. What the DITC has done is compared the list of uh, Cayman entities with GINs, which is published on the IRS website against entities which are registered with the DITC. And where there's a discrepancy between the two, it sent out notices via the registered officers provider, in our experience, asking entities to either deregister their GIN or register uh, with the DITC. So, so effectively, what they're saying is, if you're saying you're a financial institution by, by dint of, of having obtained a GIN, then you need to kind of comply with your full requirements under the AEOI uh, regime in Cayman and register and report with us. Now, there are differences in the registration deadlines under FATCA and CRS, which may be leading in, in some instances to the, the kind of discrepancy. 
Under the factor regime, an entity which is a financial institution or a reporting financial institution doesn't need to register with the DITC until the 30th of April of the first year of reporting. But under CRS, the, the situation is a bit different because you have to register the next 30 April after you first became a financial institution. Now, the problem with this is that by obtaining a GIN, you, you're indicating that you've commenced business. And as I think a lot of people in the industry know, the way the regime works doesn't quite tally with how industry works in practice because one of the first things that is done for an entity which is intended to become an investment fund is to obtain a GIN so that it can kind of set up engagements with, with its, uh, its own service providers. But nonetheless, if you've gone and got your GIN at the beginning of a given year or even at the, the end of a previous year, you're basically flagging publicly that you're a financial institution and that's then going to put you on radar for having to register with the DITC. So if you maintain your GIN and you don't register with the DITC, we wouldn't be surprised if a given entity becomes subject to further inquiry or even a breach notice. If you do register right now, you might be subject to a further inquiry as to when you actually carried on your business because they'll be interested in knowing whether there ought to have been prior years reporting. That'll be potentially more relevant where you have an older entity, where one has been set up more recently, you have this kind of timing disparity, which I've just described. So one wouldn't have thought that, you know, providing the explanation uh, would cause too much difficulty. If you're registered with the DICC, then you're required to comply in full with AEY requirements, and that includes having in place written uh, AEY policies and procedures. But all of this brings the, to the fore the kind of the fact that you need to ensure that any given entity is correctly classified for purposes of AEY, either as a financial institution or not, uh, or whether it should have actually been classified as an NFE and not ever obtained a GIN to start with. But with all of this in mind, we're very pleased to have Michelle Bailey, who heads up uh, the AEY services team at Maples FS, to give us some reminders on how they can help you with AEY compliance. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, we have seen, as you mentioned, the DITC taking action now and comparing registrations on the portal with what's been registered on with the IRS. And we've also seen now the DITC comparing the list of entities registered on the portal to those that have actually filed reports in the past. So, for example, last year, the deadline was 31 July 2022 for 2021 reporting. If a uh, entity did not file a report for 2021, they were asked that question. So we are seeing them now taking action and, and asking for more information, and particularly around timings of when they are commencing business and first becoming a reporting FI. So it's really important to know that answer when that timing is taking effect, and obviously when the first reporting is due. So an entity becoming a reporting FI in 2022 the first reports will be due 31 July 2023. So in addition to um, GIN and TIA portal registration, there are obviously additional ongoing AOI obligations. And first of all, it's to collect self-certification forms to establish the actual factor and CRS status of account holders and controlling persons of passive NFEs. This is supposed to be done at the time of the acceptance of an account holder, or the very least within 90 days of onboarding. The self-certification forms should be compared to all of the other documentation that's been collected as part of the onboarding process. That includes subdocs and AML docs. And if the completed self-cert is either incomplete, unsigned, or not consistent, 
and it's not corrected within 90 days, then the account should be closed. And just one additional point in relation to pre-existing account holders. And when FATCA was first introduced, although existing documentation was able to be used to determine classification of account holders at that time, it was intended only to be transitional in order to provide time to obtain a US TIN where a US indicia was found. The IRS is actually expecting reporting FIs to at least annually reach out to reportable US persons in an attempt to obtain any missing US TINs. In relation to reporting, so based on the classifications as determined in that onboarding process, account holders that have been identified as reportable are then required to be included in an annual return. For CRS, a separate report is required for each jurisdiction in which an RFI has, has a reportable account. And then once all of those reports have been submitted, a mandatory CRS nil declaration is required to be filed for all other jurisdictions. Similarly, US specified persons are required to be reported annually under US FATCA. And both US FATCA and CRS reporting is required to be done by 31 July each year in relation to the previous calendar year. The CRS also requires the CRS compliance form to be submitted, which includes information in relation to non-reportable accounts, as well as the total net asset value of the RFI and some general com compliance questions. This is due by the 15th of September each year in relation to the prior calendar year as well. And a couple of final points in relation to the information being reported. The RFI must ensure they report the TIN or its equivalent for all reportable account holders and controlling persons unless the jurisdiction doesn't issue the TIN or an equivalent. The OECD provides guidance as to TINs or whether there's an acceptable equivalent for certain jurisdictions. So it's really important to check the OECD site, particularly where account holders advise they do not have any TINs. In addition, the DITC expect the date of birth to be included for all individuals that are reportable because this information is required to be obtained in Cayman under the AML KYC regulations. In relation to pre-existing account holders, previously where there was US indicia but no US TIN on file, the RFI was able to report the US account holder without a TIN. Now the IRS are generating error reports where no US TINs being reported. That's been happening for the last couple of years. And they do expect a, US to, a, a new report to be submitted with the US TIN or a, an explanation. This year, well, in fact, last year they started this, but they've added some additional codes this year. If an RFI continues to be unable to report a US TIN despite making attempts to obtain it, there are certain codes that can be used in place of the TIN to identify to the IRS the reason for not having the US TIN. They will take that into consideration uh, when considering if there's been any significant non-compliance. It's not compulsory for this year. However, I believe going forward uh, in future years, that will be required. Thanks, Michelle. That's really helpful. And for those of you listening out there for whom that sounds horrendous and you want help with your filing and registration requirements, then please do reach out to Michelle, who can help. I mean, another point that kind of for me was drawn out of that is that when the, the DITC have been following up with respect to accounts with deficiencies, for instance, where there haven't been tin supplied or what have you, 
they, as part of that, have recently been asking for copies of the entity's written policies and procedures to be uploaded. So just to reinforce that requirement. So I think that's all we had to say on AEOI. Now we can move on to discuss the requirements of registered persons under CBA. And then, Nikki, you've got some updates on that. Thanks, Tim. Yes, uh, the Cayman Islands Metro Authority has commenced their new round of inspections. Um, I suppose if I was a director or part of the governing body of a civil registered person, I'd want to have a copy of all of the previous inspection reports that have been undertaken on the entity and want comfort that those points have been closed. Because what we do see when there are fines is that SEMA has already raised points in prior inspections, which haven't been closed. So generally, they administer the fines when they believe there's a systemic weakness of the controls. The process for the inspection is uh, the same. Uh, so an entity would receive a notification letter or a questionnaire. They'd have a long list of documentation to provide back to the Cayman Islands Monetary Authority in a relatively short period, so around two weeks, via the secure uh, transport portal. And... SEMA is really looking at anti-money laundering, but also the various rules and statements of guidance, some of which are new, and an increased emphasis on cybersecurity. So we have seen some inspections purely in relation to the rule and statement of guidance on cybersecurity. And obviously the new corporate governance rule and statement of guidance and the internal controls. So We've seen previously the Cayman Islands Monetary Authority ask for items such as business risk assessments, corporate governance policies. So really the application of the documentation as to how to implement those rules and statements of guidance. There's been lengthy discussions with the Cayman Islands Monetary Authority around entity risk assessments and client risk assessments in relation to weighting and scoring methodologies. And I think that's been a point where We've reviewed documentation and enhanced the documentation around that. So if you'd like to ask for any assistance with CEPA inspections, risk assessments, cybersecurity inspections as well, we can assist with those. Yeah, thanks, Nikki. I mean, the, the point really, I think, is that if you have a registered person, you are expected to have a full suite of systems and controls and documentation and evidencing both that and, and the implementation of the same. Um, and as Nikki said, we, we're now very well versed in all of this. So do get in touch if you need uh, help with putting all your compliance arrangements in place. Just the last couple of quick updates. The first is with respect to amendments to certain laws and the kind of SEMA fines regime. There's been amendments to about seven different laws, but what these have done is basically strengthen the SEMA's power to levy administrative fines by extending the relevant regimes to cover partnerships and exempted liability, part liability partnerships, limited liability partnerships, basically any kind of actor of, of a Cayman entity which wasn't previously technically in scope now is. And these amendments also allow SEMA to spontaneously share with other overseas regulatory authorities and non-public non information on criminal conduct uncovered during the course of carrying out its duties. Last reminder is with respect to the upcoming FAR or FAR deadline, as I'm sure you'll need not much reminder, mutual funds and private funds, which have a 31 December financial year end, have to file their fund annual return and audited financial statements with SEMA no later than 30 June 
these filings are um, made on reefs and copies of the, of the FAR forms and completion guides are available on SEMA's website. So that's it for today's episode. Thank you very much, Nikki and Michelle, for participating. And to all our listeners, thank you for listening and subscribing.